Hello, ladies and gents. Welcome to episode two of the State of the Universe, featuring Nicole Gallucci. Now, her name looks like it's repronounced Nicole Gugliucci because she's got that silent G, and that silent G is rare. Now, I don't know if anyone has ranked the rarity of silent letters, but I imagine the G's got to be up there. I had to Google search other words with silent G, and I came up with design, resign, and sign, and other such sign words uh and i don't even my i don't even picture there being a g in there in fact i wouldn't even be i would be okay if they removed the g if merriam webster said nah we're getting rid of the g because i really don't think that g even belongs there and that's just my opinion that's one man's opinion about g's but nicole gallucci is a straight g she's a professor of astronomy at St. Anselm College out there in New Hampshire. And uh, New Hampshire, man, that's a state that zero people live in. So I don't know where her students are coming from, but nevertheless, she's got the credentials to be a professor. What I'm saying is this. Nicole, if she achieves nothing else in her entire life, she's already a success. Let me tell you why. 20,000 Twitter followers. Holy shit. 20,000 Twitter followers? That's up there, man. That's like, I don't know, that's like maybe F-list celebrity, right? F-list, down down in the alphabet a little, but way higher than most people. And this is more impressive, I think, 50,000 tweets. My good God, 50,000. She should get a Nobel Peace Prize for that. For what reason, I don't know, but 50,000 tweets? Jesus Christ. She's an expert in radio astronomy. We don't talk about radio astronomy at all. We talk about citizen science. She's a, she's a real proponent and a, and a researcher in this field of citizen science, getting citizens involved in science. We talk about what it is, how you can get involved if you're just an ordinary citizen, or even if you're a physicist. Maybe you're, you're interested in working in astronomy or biology, and there's ways, there's avenues that you can do that. And check out SciStarter.com. To figure out how to do that, that's uh, a website she recommends. It's full of citizen science projects. And let's just get to it. Enjoy. Nicole Gallucci. Nicole, uh, you are an expert in many things. Let me tell you one thing that's unique about you. You have a silent G in your name. Silent, yes! silent G's. Am I saying your name right? Nicole Gallucci? Is yes, it? so that... Yeah. That is the, okay, so there's correct, and then there's, like, seriously, seriously correct. I consider that correct as the Americanized version of my name. I have been corrected by Italians from Italy um, that I've worked with who have said, no, 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 it's Gugliucci. And I'm like, I can't, that's a lot of movement. Yeah, but it's, e- either, it's mostly silent, but it kind of rolls if, if you say it in yeah, a proper Either way, you got that silent G going on. The silent G is not a common thing to have. Nope, tell you what, nope. the first bet I ever lost in my entire life, and I was maybe eight years old, was over the word phone. Okay, so my stepsister and stepbrother were convinced, well, they were convincing me, that there was a PH in phone. And I'm like, no, you're so stupid. You're the dumb. I was like, I'm going to win $5 off of these idiots real quick. And uh turns out there's a PH in phone. Eight-year-old me was like, no, it's clearly F-O-N-E. Are they that dumb? Like, where do these people go to school? But no, I uh, learned my lesson, and I've never spelled phone wrong since. But anyway, uh, you are, you are uh, as I mentioned, um, you have your PhD. You currently teach where? 
I am a professor at St. Anselm College in Manchester, New Hampshire. And New Hampshire is a state that many people probably don't even know exists, right? If if I had <laughs> if I hadn't actually driven to New Hampshire, I would be convinced that it was like a, not a real place at all. Uh, I think that there's maybe like I think there's more people in the city that I'm living in than there is in the entirety of New Hampshire. That would surprise me. And so Manchester is like the city in New Hampshire, and it's not. I mean, by my standards, I grew up in New York City. It's not that. I see. Yeah. Yeah, it's I live in New York now, and I absolutely despise this entire place. There's too many people here. It's unreal. Uh, you know, I watched a movie the other day that was like a, a – um, it's called Inferno. Have you seen Inferno? No. Okay. No. It's it's a movie about a guy who who doesn't like how much growth there is in the population and looks at humans as parasites. I almost got on board with this guy. I live around way too many people. It's unreal. I drive five miles to work every day, and and it takes me like forty five minutes. It's just would it be okay? This is a minor. No, this is a major spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't seen Infinity War. Have you seen Infinity War? No, I have not. Okay, then I won't. But you can spoil me. (laughs) Yeah, spoil away. Okay, well then you're basically Thanos. You're like there's too many people. Snap my fingers, half the population is gone. Yes, that's what I need. Except way more, way more than half though. Like much more than half. I just, yeah. But anyway. Okay, let's talk about That's citizen science. That's how I feel science. when I visit. I citizen totally science it. capitalizes on all of the people that we want to disappear, right? So <laughs> why true. don't we talk about what is citizen science? Why is it important? Very generic sure. question, but I'm sure you have a very good answer. Sure. So citizen science is a process by which um, scientists doing research get people who are not professional scientists to help out with that research. Uh, and there's all different levels of participation. Um, this goes back to um, like the the bird watchers of the Audubon Society, the amateur astronomers who have made great discoveries over the past century. Um, but now nowadays, it's a little bit easier to do citizen science because there's a lot of big data projects that involve either putting your data on the internet or using a smartphone to collect data. So there is this like growth, this explosion of projects that allow people to take part in in different types of science research. Um, So the job I had before this one, uh, I was working for a citizen science project where we got people all over the world to help us um, map data in um, from the moon, uh, from Mercury, they have planet Mars. So like looking at surface features on planets and worlds in our solar system. I see, yeah, and it's it's incredible because I was looking at uh, figures to talk about with when it comes to citizen science and one of the things that amazed me was uh there was a study done in 2016 um and it was the the title of the paper was can citizen science enhance public understanding of science okay Mm -hmm. it seems like a silly question because i feel like the answer is undoubtedly yes but the the question doesn't matter the point is what the what what they were analyzing and one of the things they analyzed was the the financials behind citizen science right how much money does it save, so to speak? How much money do these citizens who are working for free save the actual scientific community? And so they only analyzed 180 days uh, in 2010. And I would say citizen science is even bigger now than it was in 2010. Oh, yeah. uh, and so they found over the over seven just seven projects, right? And as you know, I don't know how many actual projects there are, but there's way more than seven, right? There's there's I wouldn't be surprised if there was close to 700 across the mm-hmm. entire spectrum. Uh, and they found that with just these seven projects, uh, 
All of the users contributed over 129,000 hours of unpaid work, which is wow. insane. 129,000 hours. And then they did some stuff in the study that I disagree with. They assumed that the average person doing this sort of research would make $12 an hour because they said oh. that they claimed that um, that is what an undergraduate would make to do this sort of thing. I wholeheartedly mm -hmm. disagree with them because you know we went to the you same – You were most recently an undergraduate. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, we went to the same undergraduate institution yeah. and um, you get more close to seven fifty an hour than you do $12 an hour. But nevertheless, uh, they, they, they came to, f to use that calculation um, to come up with a total amount over 180 days, $1.5 million in salaries that would have been saved wow. by over just the course of these seven projects. And, and this was at a time when citizen science was frankly in its, in its infancy, right? Because there's so many more projects now. There's so many more creative ways to do projects. Um, one of the things that I remember doing was uh, Galaxy Zoo, I think it was called, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And this is where you like go through and you, 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 it asks you several questions. It shows you a picture of a galaxy and you tell it whether or not it looks like a cigar, whether or not it looks like a circle, whether or not it's bright, whether or not it has other things around it. Very basic questions. Um, but it's so important because we have millions and millions of these pictures that no one could ever, no one in a professional setting could ever get paid to just sit down and go through. And not that they would want to, right? No one wants to spend eight hours a day or 40 hours a week or however many hours you work a week, uh, which is, which is a lot more than 40, um, I imagine. No one wants to spend all of that time sifting through pictures of galaxies and classifying them one way or another. And so instead, it's a really good idea to take like 40,000 people and make them do one hour a week. Uh, because that gets a lot more done. And uh, citizen science is able to do that across a, a wide range of projects. Which projects in particular do you look at right now? Or do you study right now? Or are you interested in right now? So I uh, worked as a postdoc for CosmoQuest, which uh, primarily did um, crater mapping. So the, the fun story behind that is that the uh, research scientist who brought the moon and I think the Mercury maps to us uh, had done a similar project on Mars as a grad student. And he was one of those people who sat there and looked at thousands of images. And that was the bulk of his dissertation um, was circling these craters on a screen. And he used a stylus and he has a permanent like callus on his thumb from marking something like two million craters over the course of his dissertation research. So citizen science sounded like a great option yes. for him. Which I would so, argue um, that, that spending that much time doing what he did was, was I wouldn't call it a waste of time, but it, it, it was wholly inefficient, right? Well, here's and, and, the thing. Here's the thing. We weren't sure before we did our comparative study between the professionals and the um, the volunteers at the project how accurate the counts would be because it's actually not just making a circle sounds easy, yeah. but the, the level of erosion, the, um, the angle of the sunlight when the image is taken, all of that goes into how well you can actually count it. So he actually did a study where he compared seven X or seven or eight experts against each other and also compared our citizen science group against them 
to show because a lot of people in the community weren't sure citizen scientists would do a job as good as the experts. And it turned out statistically they did as good of a job as the experts. And you're right. It happens faster. But we, we had to do that work to prove that before yes. that became popular. Yeah. And without the infrastructure um, on the Internet to do that, it wasn't we weren't able to actually share and standardize that process until until that project started. Right. So, yeah, so that's the one that I worked on. Um, I am right now actually uh, finishing a paper based on um, some interviews and surveys we did of our citizen scientists, because one of the big questions is, how do we get people interested in these projects? How do we get people to try them? How do we get them to stay with them? And yes, what did they learn? What did they get out of it? Because personally, I don't just want to be like, you are our data factory. Like, as an educator, I really care about what people get out of it, too. Right. So, but we were, we've been looking at, um, so we'll, we'll be publishing that paper soon. Um, we're still, we're slowly writing, finishing that. Um, just looking at what motivates people to do it. And it seems like people by and large just want to be a part of the scientific process. That's their motivation for, for really getting into it and feeling. And a lot of people told me things like, yeah, I studied science in school, but I really wasn't good at math, so I went and did this other thing. And a lot of them were like in IT or computer science or you know marketing or all different things, but they still had an interest in science. And right. so these citizen science projects let them actually be a part of that in, in an interesting way. Yes, it, I, I do agree that that is an important aspect of it, is connecting the general public, whether it be people who have a profession or whether it be kids still in school, Connecting them in some way to the scientific process is important. Sure. But do you think that there's parts of that that are lacking, right? Because what they don't see, I think, uh, if, you're an, if you're an elementary student and you're working on this citizen science project, what you don't see is the infrastructure that goes behind getting the data. What you don't see is the, the years-long process that comes up with making the sorts of equipment you need to get to that point. Uh, do you feel like in any way, I'm playing devil's advocate here, do you feel like in any way, like citizen science can in some way deter people from doing real science because it makes science seem more intuitive than it actually is? Ooh, that's an interesting question. Um, I would say, so again, thinking back to the population of people we talked to, they were folks who were already kind of like fans of science to begin with. Right. So if they had an idea of what science entails because they follow scientists on Twitter, they you know hear more about our, our lives and our work that way. So I could see I could see where there might be a danger there, but it's no more dangerous than say the science stories that we read about in the news that make science sound like, oh, this study said this and this study said that. Um, it's if anything, it's giving a little more insight into the process behind the science than the news articles that most people read when they are interested in hearing about scientific discoveries. So it gives them a little glimpse. But you're right, it's only a little glimpse. There are some projects where, um, you know, if folks want to get more involved. It's, it's, it's a lot rarer, but... Uh, if you have, uh, particularly astronomers, if you have really nice telescope equipment, you can contribute at a higher level and get even more of that experience. So if anything, I say it helps because it gives a little bit of insight, more so than the exposure that they would have had in their science classes or from, say, science media and science communication. Right. 
Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. Uh, I agree in particular with you that the way that science is covered in the media oftentimes is dangerous. Uh, mm-hmm. I agree that taking what is in many cases a long-term, very in-depth and, and tough to draw conclusions from study and making outrageous claims from it is, is, is an issue. So the other day I saw a, a YouTube video on some science news site and it said, um, or rather maybe it was a Facebook post, regardless, it said something along the lines of, this is the last thing uh, this telescope saw as it, as it plummeted into a black hole or something, okay? And what was okay. actually happening is, the telescope was being decommissioned. It was being shut down. And it was mm-hmm. a telescope that looked at active galactic nuclei. So galaxies that have supermassive black holes in them, and they have accretion disks, and those accretion disks are causing all sorts of dynamics for the, for the listener. Um, we call these active galactic nuclei. Okay, you have some accretion disk that's spiraling into a black hole, and you're creating all sorts of emissions, and you look at these emissions in all different wavelengths, in all different ways. Right now we have multi-messenger astronomy, and we're looking at them in ways we've never looked at them before. But nevertheless, yeah, we're, looking, we're looking at them. And, and it's dangerous, I think, to get clickbait by pretending that this telescope got decommissioned because it fell into a black hole rather than interesting. Yeah. Because there are people out there, right? Because to some people that are listening, that might seem like, okay, we know there's no black holes next door. We know that we're not able to send a telescope into a black hole. Yes, I agree with you. And maybe 50% of the, of the readers that look at that headline are just like you. And they know that that's nonsensical, but there's a large population of readers who will not look at the, actual content of the video or of the article, but will instead run with that headline and, un- and, and leave social media with the impression that we are actually able to send a satellite into a black hole. And that's dangerous. <laughs> uh, it's, that's, I think that the fact that Americans don't tend to read stuff. Did you see a lot of news websites are doing this thing recently? It's, it's very popular where they, they share some outrageous story, some story that's that's completely fake. I know one of them that I see frequently is uh, that NASA confirmed that cannabis has alien DNA. Okay, have you seen this? <laughs> I have not seen this. One. Okay, I'm well, clearly on the wrong clickbait. Yes, guys. this was shared by like millions of people over the course of a few days, and if you actually read the article, they explain to you the the whoever it is, whatever news source it was that was doing this study, explains to you that this is indeed fake and they are doing it on purpose. They're seeing how many shares they can get and how much discussion they can generate by making a headline that is completely unrelated to the actual story. The actual story is that Americans tend not to read the actual content of things anymore. They just read the headline. And because of that, you have an entire culture surrounded by making headlines, which is completely different than an entire culture surrounded around actually reading educated news sources. And so you have a lot of people who take these headlines and they run away with them. Some insane amount of people didn't actually click on the story. Like 85% of people didn't actually click on the story. And that in and of itself is not a good thing, but it is indicative of the culture that we, we occupy. And I think that's where citizen science is actually a really good thing to educate people. If anything else, that's what it should be doing. Uh, is, is getting people 
involved in something and educating them because that's what we need. We need a lot of education, but I do think that the citizen science project should, should be more, um, in, involved, so to speak. So what I was, ta- I was talking about galaxy zoo earlier, right? And you, you, yeah. make all, you click on these different buttons, but from my experience, there's no learning that actually takes place. It's all observation. It's, is this happening or is this not happening? It's, is this round or is this not round? Uh, it's the type of things, like you said, you don't want your subjects to be data miners, but there are projects that make them data miners, right? That's why I actually really love projects, um, not necessarily astronomy projects. There are tons of fields and that, that do various projects. And one of the cool ones, I think, is uh, Louisiana and Texas area in the Gulf of Mexico does this, this thing where if you get a fishing license, you can get tags, okay? And when you catch a fish, if you are not going to eat it, if you're going to catch and release, you can tag it. And um, I'm not a fisher myself or a fisherman myself, but you yeah. tag the fish. Um, regardless of, of our beliefs about fishing or hunting or what have you, the listener, uh, frankly, that's not important. What's important is that you tag these fish. And uh, then if someone else catches the same fish with your tag on it, they can turn that tag in and potentially enter themselves into some prize pool and get a reward. Now, why is this important? It's important because it gives people, fishermen, which are going to exist regardless, an incentive to tag their fish and then an incentive to turn those tags over to the governing body, the Department of Wildlife or whatever the department is called down there. Now, it's important because it measures migration patterns and it measures them really well. Because if if a fish is caught off the coast of Texas or something, Mm-hmm. Um, and then simultaneously, a couple months later, caught off the coast of Miami. Uh, that's a very important. That's very important to measure migration patterns, and it, it although might not be looked at as citizen science, it is large scale science involving the citizen. And I think projects like that that get people more involved are important. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? Um, that's interesting. I've not heard of that one. Do you know what that one's called? No. I don't think it has a name. I think it is a, I don't think it has a, a project name, so to speak. Okay. I think it is something that is, uh, I can give it to you though, after the, after the podcast, I have my source written down somewhere. Um, okay. I think it is, it is primarily uh, a government or state run program more than a mm-hmm. citizen science project. Uh, but nevertheless, a it lot has of those to- types of projects do uh, interact with the citizen science academic community. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Citizen Science Association is kind of a professional organization that allows people who are doing citizen science all over the place to, to connect. And um, yeah, a lot of projects are like that in that um, they're tapping into an activity that people already do, like hiking and fishing. Um, those are the two. Uh, bird watching. Yes. Uh, that's a big one. Um, those are the main ones I can think off the top of my head, uh, but all like naturalist type things. Um, yeah. And then there are some that are even more involved where instead of tacking onto an activity you already do, it has you go out and do an activity like collect water samples um, for contamination and things like that. There's huge swath of, of different levels of engagement. Um, and I forget there was, there was one of the academic articles that talked about, um, there was a uh, different, different levels of engagement. You know, there's either high, you know, there's a high granularity or there's a low granularity. You know, the low ones are like, you go online to a website and you look at things and you classify pictures. Um, whereas these more involved projects, um, 
do have some a slightly different set or tend to attract people with a different set of motivations because they're working it into an activity that they're already doing or um, they're a school teacher looking for a project for their students to do. Right. So there's definitely yeah um, a nice range of, of types of activities. Do you know which activity level brings upon the most uh, retention in terms of if people continue doing the the project or if they drop off? So there's not a, a retention in terms of, of keeping staying on yes, the project. Correct. I'm not pulling any numbers off the top of my head. Um, where I, I was just doing the literature section of our paper, and I that's not ringing a bell. Um, whether there was a difference in retention. Um, yeah. They were done with small samples, with like just two, you know, comparing one project against another. So mm-hmm. I don't think there was a huge difference all citizen science projects across the board have generally pretty low retention rates it it turns out um people will try it and be like this is cool and do it for a bit and then not come back or come back once or twice um so what i've seen in the in the motivation motivations literature is a switch towards let's you know some people you know we're not so worried about having a long-term community let's design the project for people who stop in, try it, and then move on with their lives. So there's kind of a couple of different ways of doing it is, do you want to build a community of dedicated people who are going to do it time and time again? Um, CosmoQuest, which I worked for in one sense, did that because we offered a lot of media content um, and uh, kind of like community building online so that there was an extra part of it in addition to the citizen science. So we were building a community. Um, but there are projects that are focusing on how can we best capture people's attention five, 10 minutes here or there every few months. We don't have to be a big part of their lives. Um, so, so the actual usage pattern, engagement pattern, it depends on how you design your projects in in a lot of ways. Right. I see. It's interesting that you're moving in that direction, uh, because I think that's a smart direction to move in because I, I, I imagine that the retention efforts are, are, very high, but the actual retention yield is, is very low. And I'm speaking and, from yeah. personal experience. Uh, I tried these sorts of things when I was in high school and I maybe did them for like 15 right. minutes. And then I was like, hey, maybe I could be doing something to benefit me directly and not yeah. science indirectly. Uh, but so, so I get it. And I, and I know there's people who, who are so, so ingrained in these studies. I know a lot, there's a lot of people, there's some records set. There's like people who've spent like 400 hours on a given citizen science project yes. and they get recognized for super it. super users. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> they blow me away. They're like, we did all your images. I'm like, how did you do all of the images? Have you, ta- have you <laughs> talked to these people? What is their motivation? What do they no, tell you? No, I didn't get a hit. I know I didn't get, um, there were a couple of people who were not super user like that, but pretty high level users. And, and, you know, they would say things, I'm trying to think of the quotes from the paper, so I'm not digging too deep into the data. Um, you know, like, I'm retired. What else am I going to do? You know, right. like, I'm going to do this when, I, you know, I'm going to visit my grandkids and I'm going to do this. I'm going to do the gardening and then I'm going to sit here and I'm going to mark craters. I'm going to do science. So, you know, there are a few people like that who have a reason um, to really dig into it or they're just fascinated by the the task. Um yeah, that's another thing we're looking at is 
Are you fascinated by the task itself or do you want to get something out of it? And we, find, we, we found a pattern. The people who like the task itself are the ones who are more likely to have a higher retention rate. That was, right. that was something that our, our data kind yeah. of shows. It's like, yeah, I really like looking at these pictures of the moon because um, that's the direct benefit that they get out of right. it. Yeah, that's very interesting. Why do you think we talked earlier about how two thousand and ten to now it's been such a growth? Mm-hmm. Why? Why is there so many more people doing it? Is it just because there's more projects, there's more awareness, it's touching on more interests that people might have across the board, there's more avenues, there's more smartphones, there's more data. Why? What do you think? Um it's a bunch of things. So I think it's more it's more acceptance within the scientific community. Um like I said, we had to show that our Creator counters were doing as well as the experts. Um, so there's more um, acceptance in the scientific community. Uh, we're better at building online platforms to host these large data sets and feed them out to people in, in ways that are digestible. Um, so it's it's the website technology, it's science, you know, scientific um, acceptance of the idea. Uh, smartphones is, is is a big factor for projects that are either uh, designed specifically to be done on mobile, which is great because if you're standing in line at the grocery store and you goof, instead of goofing off on Instagram for a couple of minutes, you goof off on a science project um, or uh, some that actually use your, your phone sensors um, or at least or even just your camera while you're while you're out and about um, that that has opened up a whole lot of avenues um, for for science from the scientist perspective. It's also we're just like everyone else in the era of big data where we've got these bigger and bigger data sets, data storage is cheap. Uh, telescopes are getting bigger. Data sets are getting bigger. We're getting all these images now. Um, so the need is there as well. It's definitely the platform is there with the internet, but the need is there now with bigger data sets. So all of those things I think have come together to make this, this time, this particular time where citizen science is really blossoming. Yes. I also think uh, in terms of the scientific community's need for this, it is absolutely necessary in some regards because we are as well, we are also in the age of big data. Alongside that, we are in the age of collaboration. Science Mm -hmm. cannot be done anymore the way Albert Einstein did it a hundred years ago or however many years ago. Uh, It just can't be done. It's very hard for one person to sit down and, and begin deriving equations the way that Einstein and his predecessors could because a lot of the fundamental equations we work with have already been derived. We're beyond that. Now we're in very much a testing phase. We have to test all of the infrastructure that we have come up with over the past 400 years. And a lot of that involves Dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of people working for years and years and years. Mm-hmm. For example, I am in the uh, binary black hole community. So I model uh, binary black holes that are orbiting around one another. I model the gravitational waves that are produced in such a thing. I work uh, closely with LIGO and the very mm-hmm. many collaborators. And those papers – so the LIGO papers were papers published um, – were papers published – Several years ago, that highlighted the findings of gravitational wave sources for the first time, uh, which is very important, a very big deal. I'm sure the listener has seen it in the news or heard the buzzwords, gravitational waves, or Einstein was proven right again. I think that's a headline every week um, yeah. because I think everything's attributed to Einstein, including every single inspirational quote ever made. 
is attributed to Einstein. <laughs> Stuff like is, that, yeah. Yeah, which is fine. Uh, he, he was an important guy. But nevertheless, uh, these papers, the the citation pages were longer than the actual paper itself. There were over a thousand collaborators working on this one project. And they were working on it for decades. Are you still there, Nicole? Oh, you yeah. froze for a second. Yeah, um, it froze for a second. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's fine. Could you hear me? Yeah. Uh, a little bit. Uh, okay. It's about the length of the author list, which I am definitely yes. familiar with between yes. them and, and the par- particle physics community. Yes, it is. Yeah, and CERN is another good uh, good example of mm-hmm. of a large scale collaborative effort to nail down some science. And you have people working in every single aspect of this. You have people doing the modeling. You have people doing the engineering. You have people analyzing the data. You have people transporting the data. You have people in every possible asset you could imagine that are working to make this project successful and it's not just CERN and it's not just LIGO and gravitational wave detections it's almost every single project you will see in science today outside of small liberal arts institutions that are working on very general things uh, in some cases and in some cases even they are working on a small piece of a very large puzzle exactly um and so the collaboration efforts are higher now than they've ever, ever been. And a lot of that is due to the internet, due to the fact that we can share data so easily. Um, I think I read that uh, LIGO in its very early day, or I'm sorry, CERN in its very early days was still transporting a lot of their data by hand. They would, mm-hmm. they had someone whose job it was to just fly back and forth between Europe and the United States carrying large sets of data because there was no reliable way to, to transfer it outside of that. If you wanted we were to still doing that when I was in grad school, actually we were mailing 12 terabyte drives back and forth between Virginia and South Africa. Yes. It was faster than yes. the internet. Mm-hmm. And in some <laughs> cases, in and, and in some cases it, it's still, I know that uh, when I was at green bank, West Virginia, uh, where they have the, the green bank observatory, I was there several years ago and they said that in some cases they still mail hard drives full of data. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's faster when you're talking about a couple terabytes of data it's sometimes faster to mail it than it is to actually transfer the files and i work in a in a setting where we have terabytes and like hundreds of terabytes of data that get produced from one of our simulations and i can say comfortably that with the internet speeds now we're able to transfer that where maybe we don't have to use hard drives but some place like Green Bank, West Virginia, if you've never been there, it's in a it's in a radio quiet zone, right? So it was built in an area where they didn't have to worry about sifting through their radio signals to try to eliminate noise, but instead they could reliably observe something and then go right into analyzing it and not having to worry about uh, whether or not there was a car driving by or whether this is happening or that is happening. Electric blanket short, shorting out. Yes. Or a mic. I spent a lot of my graduate career at Green Bank, so Did you? <laughs> I've heard all the fun stories. Yes. I, when I, when I was there, um, they were, they were, they have a truck that is whose sole job it is this guy in the truck and he drives around and he's like looking for radio signals, you know. It like, looks like the Ghostbusters truck, but with antennas all over yes, it. Yes, exactly. You know, exactly. We called them the RFI busters. Radio frequency interference is RFI for your listeners. Yes. The RFI busters is what we call them. Yeah, and they just, <laughs> their, their job is to just drive around and make sure that no one in the town of Green Bank is, is using any things that yep. they shouldn't be using. 
uh, because this is a radio quiet zone. And it's just insane to think in the age of cell phones that we still have a radio quiet zone. This is a place where if you go, you will not be using your cell phones. Uh, there is no Wi-Fi, these sorts of things. If you want to use a computer, you sit down and it's plugged into the wall in the, in the old fashion. If I took my MacBook there, I wouldn't even be able to access the internet. Steve Jobs has eliminated my ability to access the internet in Green Bank, West Virginia, or whoever. You took- can get a dongle. You can get a yeah. dongle that'll uh, USB to Ethernet. I have I, one from yeah, my I, Green Bank days. <laughs> I hate. I just hate MacBook, and I like to talk shit as much as possible because I'm. This MacBook is recording me right now, but I. Oh, it was a big, <laughs> bigger, big regret of mine getting it. Um, when I when I came to to grad school, they offered me a computer, and I'm like, scientific computing. Let's go with Mac. Big mistake. Yes. Hate it. Horrible. Really? You no. Know, they, 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 these Your other keyboards, option is Linux, though. Yeah, well, you know, that might be better. Butt. Yeah, I, I guess the bottom line is I just want something that will do everything for me. Like maybe okay. like maybe in, instead of citizen science, we just have like citizen um, citizen people who follow us around and, and learn everything for us and make my <laughs> life as easy as possible. Because... I just hate computers. I don't know why I work with computers every day. They are the worst thing ever. My MacBook can't even connect to the Wi-Fi half the time, and it makes me want to throw it out the window. It's got these – It for some reason, Mac is like so convinced that their audience will follow them that they make decisions like switching their USB ports so that nothing is compatible. You can't even print anything anymore. They've essentially stepped back like 40 years because they want to step forward 40 years. And it's terrible. I can't charge my phone on the MacBook. I gotta buy like forty-five dollar dongles for everything. If I want to use my printer, I have to buy a dongle. If I want to use Ethernet, I have to buy a dongle. If I want to plug in my flash drive, I have to buy a dongle. It's it's unreal. Mac, get your shit together. <laughs> and also your you keyboards. Know, you know, back in my day, I'm gonna be the old person and be like, look, I hated dealing with Linux. I was so happy when astronomy switched to Mac. Because it's you don't have to find a driver and troubleshoot everything yourself. Ah, oh, I, I did yes. not. I was not very good at managing a Linux system. So, yeah, you know, I, I just Count your blessings, youngin. No. Yes, I uh, <laughs> I worked with with supercomputers all day long, and I hate them all. I wouldn't mind going back to the Stone Age sometimes. They're so bad. <laughs> so you do theory. You're a theorist, and you hate computers. Is this what I'm hearing? Yes, I hate hate. I work in a center. That sole purpose is to produce models of merging black holes. And these goddamn computers suck so bad. I would rather do... Well, fun- your job as an astronomer will be fighting with your computer. I learned that the hard way in grad oh, school. I know. I, sp- I spend eight hours a day just fighting my computer. And then it's like every other day it's the computer fighting, and then every other day it's actual science. Mm-hmm. So. Yep. So that's fantastic. What was I even talking about before? I hate hate Mac. These stupid keyboards too. These keyboards, you can't even like all right, whatever happened to the joy of pressing a key? That doesn't exist. It's like a f- <laughs> If you have the newest generation MacBook, it's like typing on a table. They don't press or anything. They're just touch. Really? They're I have, ju- well, I, I I buy old refurbished stuff because I'm a cheapo. Um so I, I have see. not run across this yet. Okay, well, I'm exa- I'm exaggerating a little bit. You press them like a, a nanometer. But not much at all. Like so little. It's just I, it's. I miss the old mechanical click of the keyboard when you press the button, and it's like makes okay. this really loud, like typewriter type noise. It doesn't exist. Yeah. Mac has taken everything I like and and has left me with <laughs> nothing. 
Oh, so sad. Well, I think we're talking about these large technology, large scale projects, right? Like, I think that's, yeah, because that got us into the technology stuff. And I I just wanted to to, um, concur with you that, yes, the projects have gotten bigger and more complicated because the mechanical thing of the experiments have. But the the idea that, that many of us have that a lot of science was done by these lone geniuses is is really not quite accurate um, because a lot of these these theories and stuff were come up not just by one person sitting in a room. I mean, even Einstein, Einstein's an exception because he did do a lot of sitting in a room by himself thinking up equations. Mm-hmm. But his work was also collaborative. He wouldn't have gotten to relativity without... Um, the equations like the Lorentz transformations, you know, uh, a lot of quantum mechanics wouldn't have come about without these these physicists getting together and, and actually hashing through these concepts. So I don't want to. And, and this is something that scares some people away from science, I think, is that idea of the lone genius doing all this stuff by themselves when really it's the collaborative aspect has been a part of science. Yes. From the yes. beginning. It just doesn't come out in, in the stories we tell about how science is done, right. which is, is, well, is well, a whole other interesting thing. What I should have said is that the age of sole authorship is done, right? So science has always been built on the building blocks of the people who came before you, right? Einstein didn't start mm-hmm. from scratch. Uh, he, he built upon the building blocks that, that many other people set for him. Um, and the, the, the fact of the matter is if Einstein didn't do what Einstein did – if he never got into graduate school, if he never got his job at, at, at the, the office where he was able to, to plug away at equations for five hours a day, someone else would have done the exact same thing. Sure. Um, but w- what I should be saying is that we're in the age of collaborative science in the sense that you cannot do stuff on the small scale anymore, right? You cannot be the – in fact, I would go as far as to say the first author on many papers doesn't even carry the importance that it once did. I think that it depends on the field. Yes, it, it, it does, and it also field. depends on yeah. the size of the study, right? Because a lot right. of a lot of your uh, studies that you do might have uh, a few number of authors, but when there are one thousand five hundred authors on a paper, you you argue whether or not even having your name on the paper mattered at all, mm-hmm. um, because you you get and it gets down to this this nitty gritty where it's like what what constitutes actually helping enough to be given credit because if we're giving every why don't we give the guy credit who changes the garbage in the office every day because that guy's helping out that guy's important yeah, yeah. doesn't smell why don't we we the guy who puts the urinal cakes in or i don't know the guy who cleans the microwave because i don't know about your office but god damn people at my office do not know how to clean a microwave it's all <sighs> disgusting they don't know we what have a lit very is. small department so it's it's I see. The students. I think once we move the microwave to the student lounge, we're gonna regret it. Um, is yeah. is all I have to say. I love my students, but I don't think they can clean a microwave. <laughs> I think fair. the faculty's better at it. That's yeah. Fair. No, yeah. I, I I remember the grad school fridge at UVA. It was uh, someone would at once a month clean it, just throw everything out because yep. it would be nasty. The, the very first day I came in to to work. Uh, I use the fridge and then I was like, G- my food tastes like actual horse shit because whatever these people have in this fridge is it just smells so bad. I bought, I, I bought a lunchbox that very day and I, I haven't turned back yet. So it's I, the tragedy of the commons. You have to put somebody in charge or else it'll just fall apart. Yes. It's, uh, 
I don't know. People, <laughs> it's overpopulated and there's too many people going back to this. I would sacrifice I citizen you. science. Okay. I grew up in New York and it was fine when I was growing up. And now that I've lived outside of New York for the past 17 years of my life, I go back and I'm like, oh, God, why are there so many people yeah, here? I don't even get it. Why, why Why? do I subject myself to traffic? I don't even understand why I do it, let alone why other people do it. I don't – whatever. <laughs> I feel like um, Williamsport, Pennsylvania, where we both spent several years of our life, uh, Williamsport is a small little town with like 50,000 people, maybe, if you count all of the surrounding areas, 50,000 if you're lucky, um, where there's, you know, the number of places you can eat or like you can count them on four hands. Uh, so must have expanded since I was there. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of fast food places are, 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 True. you know, taking over the world, but um, yeah. And now we're here in Rochester, Pennsylvania, or Rochester, New York, and there's 1 million people in my general vicinity. And I'm not kidding. Actually, 1 million people. That is. Yeah, wait. Rochester's not New York City, though. I thought you were like. Oh, no. For some reason, I thought. Oh, okay. So no. it's a city, but it's still not like Manhattan. No. We're like, no. there's people everywhere. Okay. No, okay. No. I could picture that better. Yeah. 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 That's fair. Yeah, I grew up on Staten Island, which is half a million people on a tiny island with garbage. That's, so. that's just too many. <laughs> too many. That's where that's where <laughs> mental illness is born. If you want to cure the 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 mental illness problem in this country, you got to tackle New York. New York is enemy number one. Oh, I wouldn't blame that. I would blame grad school for me personally, but that's a different story. <laughs> yeah. Well, imagine grad school in New stress York. Of grad school. The stress of grad school is a whole a whole other thing. Um. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I found a happy medium in Manchester yeah. um, because it's much bigger than Williamsport. No knock to Williamsport, but it is not for me. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's much smaller than, than a big city like that. So I can get around without having traffic that makes me want to cry. Um, yeah. Yeah. But so the the back to back to citizen science, I'm curious about some of the limitations right now that I've rambled about nonsense for a while. Um there are some limitations to citizen science, right? Sure. So we talked already about data quality, and you said that mm -hmm. there was seems to be no correlation between having non-scientists versus scientists analyzing the data as long as it's rather intuitive data, uh, as long as it's not something that requires you to know physics or math or you know mm -hmm. something in depth, then it's not that big a deal. Uh, what about... Uh, are there any citizen science projects that you know of that give rewards that give some sort of incentive for people to participate? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I know a number of them have integrated gamification into it, so it's not necessarily a tangible reward, but uh, one in particular called iWire is a citizen science project that is mapping neurons in the brain from brain scans, but they've written it as a video game. So how well you do in mapping these neurons contributes to your score in the game. Ah. Uh, and you get various level and, you know, so all the same, all the same, um, I guess, uh, I don't, I don't game my partner games. I don't, I don't 
I don't really game. Um, but all the same incentives you get in a video game are, are built into that. Um, Cosmo Quest, I think, implemented badges. So, like, those little, you know, like, oh, you've marked a thousand images, you get a super explorer badge or something like that. I know there's been some work on on those incentives, but I don't um, know if they've come, what the conclusions are yet. Um, there's not a whole lot of it that's like, we're going to pay you, or um, at least in citizen science. Now, I can think of um, Amazon has something called Mechanical Turk, which is a crowdsourced uh, data mining effort. It's not science, but it's just general data. Um, and they do pay for that. And, and so there's probably studies on how effective that is, um, whether people see it as what their incentive is. Interestingly, that is a question we asked our um, citizen scientists. We interviewed them. It's not one we're including in our current analysis, but we asked them, like, what would you think if you got a reward for this? And most of the people we talked to were like, it wouldn't change anything. Um, I'm doing it because I like science. I'm doing it because I'm helping it. You know, the there's no way you could, you know, you're going to pay me as much as my real job pays me. So I'm yeah. not going to like quit life and do citizen science. Um, no, so that, interestingly, mo- a lot, and, and some people were worried that would, that would decrease the quality. I was going to say, um, I, I, yeah. that's what I would expect to hear. Or that's what I would hope to hear rather is that it, it, yeah. that it wouldn't affect their, their, their love for it because once you introduce pay, I think, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. all of a sudden, yeah, especially if you introduce something like pay for results. So okay. it, going back to the galaxy thing or to like, there's exoplanet type things where you identify mm-hmm. different qualities of an exoplanet. If you pay, let's say you pay $10 per 1000 catalog, you, I would imagine, and I think I'm right, that if you do that, you will diminish the quality so, so bad because you'll get people who then turn it into a, 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 a job where they mine as much as possible right. and they pay very little attention to detail. And in fact, I think in some cases you'd get people who click and just click, 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 click right. over and over again uh, to, to achieve it as fast as possible. And so, yeah. so I, I, I'm curious how Mechanical Turk, because they do pay um, per, I don't know, process that you do. It's like some ridiculously low number per process, but you have to do thousands and thousands and thousands of them to, to make some money. Right. So I don't know what they're, they must have some, quality control built in yes, um, I think to, their, to the tasks, which makes it, yeah, a whole different story. Um, but I think there's a middle, like there's a middle grounds where instead of paying people, you are giving them badges or giving them status as, as a user, that kind of stuff incentivizes people to do a little bit more maybe, but without the data quality suffering. Cause at the end of the day, a badge is not going to change their life. You know, a badge on right. a website is not going to change your life. Yes, yes. Um, so I, I think some some places have, have, have been pursuing that option as a way of increasing participation. I see. It's it's a it's a good option as any because in, in theory, you'd like to compensate these people for their work, but that mm-hmm. goes against the fundamental point of the the reason it was started to begin with, right? It was started right. to, to reach as many people as possible and save money and save resources and, and not cost so much because along with the collaborative age of science comes the expensive age of science, 
right? Yeah. Because not only do you have a thousand people working on something, but you have to pay those 1000 people to work on that something. Uh, we're not all doing it for free. Although some of our paychecks may indicate that we are doing it for free at the end of the day, we're not doing it for free. And this is our, this is our career. This is our goals. The, this is are, how I pay rent. That's yes. what I kept telling people. Like, this is how I pay rent. Yes. And so <laughs> yeah. it's, it's important. Um, it's important that, that the professionals get compensated as professionals and the citizens, I think it would be, it would be a bad thing to compensate. Then it's for not citizen a volunteer science. effort anymore. Yeah. Then right. it's a different class, like citizen science. Um, for, you know, when we look at the motivations, we rely a lot on the, the literature around volunteerism because mm -hmm. that there's a huge overlap there in, in, um, you know, the, what, what you get out of the experience. Um, and back to what we're talking about with these papers, with all of these authors, you know, if you have 10,000 people helping you mark craters, you can't put 10,000 people on your author list. You can't even thank 10,000 people in the acknowledgement section of your paper. Right. Um, so that gets interesting, too. How do you credit the people for the work that yes. they've done in, I, in that way? I have heard cases of people who partake in citizen science and have done such a good job or have found some anomaly that, that wasn't found by anyone else that have gotten Like Hanny? Hanny in Galaxy Zoo? Hanny's Vorp? I have not, I'm you not familiar. Story? No, please oh, tell it. There was this school teacher named Hanny, and I forget her last name. Um, and she saw something really funky looking in a Galaxy Zoo image, and it turned out to be this whole new class of galactic phenomenon, uh, which they call Vorwerp, which I think means object. Um, okay. I think she's from the Netherlands. Anyway, so yeah, she's, uh, yeah, that's one of the, the few stories in citizen science where somebody got famous. <laughs> doing citizen science, at least famous in the you know science dork community. Yeah. Were these um, the were these the, the yellow paper. were these the yellow blobs? I think they're green. Green, yellow, but green. but they're like little blobs, right? On the yes, pictures. Yes. Okay. And then I have heard of this vaguely. Yes. Okay. But can you can continue? I just wanted to know. No, if this that's was the that's, same thing. that's that's one story that that sticks out. Um, and then again, when you have amateur astronomers, and I use the term amateur lightly, or not lightly, or I don't know, incorrectly. Because amateur astronomers are the most badass, amazing freaking people I know. Um, they spend so much time and passion and money sometimes on their equipment and their data collecting, the, uh, particularly the ones that are on the level where they're contributing to, to research projects. That amateur doesn't seem like the right word for them, but right. they're amateurs in that they do this in their spare time and they're not paid for it. Yes, I was going to say am amateur. end up on those papers. Amateur yeah. has a really bad connotation in some instances. Because right. like if we talk about a, a, a Greco-Roman wrestler, right? If we talk about someone in the Olympics who, who wrestles, we, call, we even call them amateur wrestlers. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and it's just indicative of the fact that they're doing something and they're not receiving direct compensation for doing it. Um, right. because there is no such thing as a wrestling league where you do academic type wrestling. There's professional wrestling, which is not actual wrestling. Um, yes. But which is weird that there's no professional outlet to get paid for that specific sport. Uh, but nevertheless, amateur has a bad connotation, but and I don't even know why it gets the bad connotation. It, it's... Because you don't want to run across an amateur nuclear physicist. Yes. You know, you don't want... Like, yeah. There it, are some it... things that people should not be dabbling in at an amateur level. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or like an amateur photographer. 
or, you know, an amateur, I can't even think, gardener, some, you know, there are lots of things that are at hobby level for people, but some hobbies demand a lot um, yes. or can demand a lot. And I feel like astronomy is, is, is one of those um, hobbies that you can really invest in it. Uh, and become super, super badass at it. And my favorite type of amateur astronomers are amateur radio astronomers, because that's a whole nother level of harder. Because you can't just go to the store and you can go to a store and buy a telescope, or you can go right. to a catalog and buy a telescope. Yes. You can't quite do that with radio telescopes. You have to build it. Yes. Um, it's, so it's, it's very impressive. Yeah. yeah. No, actually, just good. amateur astronomers in general are very impressive people. Uh, because there is a lot, it's not as simple as setting up a tripod and putting a lens on it and looking through it and seeing things. Uh, there is a lot, a lot of, of learning that goes along with that. Um, yes. I've worked My with astronomy 101 students learn that real fast. They're yes. like, how did you find that so quickly? It takes them all night to find like two stars. And I'm yeah. Like, it's like, yeah, practice. You, it's you, just practice. you think you're moving left, but you're actually moving right. And you think you're moving up and you're actually moving down. And it's just, yeah, it takes years to actually like, to, to understand fundamentally how to how to use some of these devices. Although now they have this new to go software. Are you familiar with to go? Oh my god, it's the word. It's to go changing. to with GPS. You basically don't have to do anything. It's, yes, it's, you, we, you, I do not have one with GPS. I have a go to, but it doesn't have GPS. Super great for outreach. That way, I'm not spending half my time looking for things. I can actually just press the button and keep talking. Yes, while the it's fantastic. Goes. It's it 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 essentially takes very little user input outside of changing lenses and focusing. And now these are the sorts of things that you actually have to be good at using a tell. So it's not like anyone could do it. Um, but in terms of actually using the interface, it's as simple as, as typing in the coordinates of where you live, which can be easily found with a smartphone um, by asking what are the coordinates where I live in Google and it will gladly give them to you and type in what time of day it is and whether or not daylight savings time is, is occurring, which is the toughest question that they'll ask you because I don't know if we're on daylight savings time or off daylight savings time. I just, I know because I have colleagues in Arizona that I have a weekly yes. telethon with and they don't have daylight savings time. I know time, they're so, so I have to keep track. <laughs> Yes. Also, but I also run a night lab for my for my class, so I, I have to pay attention to when the sun's going up and down. I see. Um, yeah. So if you teach if you teach a lot of intro astronomy or or astronomy labs, you will find yourself knowing when daylight savings is. Man, uh, I, very I, quickly. I, all I know is that sometimes the the clock goes backwards, a spring forward. I think we spring forward and then we fall so, back. Yeah. yeah. But I don't know which interval is on and which interval is off. We're on. In we, summer, we're on. Okay, now I know. See, I went to Arizona last summer and uh, was very confused that I was like, this is not Pacific time. What is going on? I'm like, why is Starbucks closed uh, when it's only 9 o'clock, you know, or something like that? Um, but yeah, I, I had no idea that Arizona did not abide by Arizona it. does not. Yeah, so I learned yep. that last summer. I learned that. But uh, going there, I had no idea. Yep, so, yep. Yes, that's a smart idea, though. Daylight savings time is just incredibly pointless. Do you agree? Do you disagree? Yes, but because I am not a morning person, I want it to be daylight savings time permanently. You <laughs> like, I want it to go and... on and never turn off. Like, I, I want us to be, I just want our, our time zone shifted, basically. <laughs> I want the sun to stay up late and get up late. Um, yes. But yeah, no, I, don't I, think, I, I, don't, I, I don't have do... any control. I do like that. I, I just prefer summer where it like gets dark at nine thirty and then gets light again at like six. 
five, six. Yes, that's that's what I prefer. I, daylight savings time is. Whereas in the winter where I am in New Hampshire, it's dark at like four thirty p.m. Oh, it starts getting dark. So yeah. I'd rather if daylight savings time was still on in the winter, it'd be five thirty. Um, so yes. I, I want it to be permanently on. Yeah, <laughs> that's I my don't, personal. I don't. It's one of the goofiest things that we abide by as a society that I don't understand for the life of me why we abide by it. Um, but. I guess it's, you know, the goal of it is to have more daylight hours while a human being is awake. But that doesn't account for, like, the 21st century human being who sleeps in until 9 a.m. and then loses out on, like, six hours of light by the time they get up in this new regime. Yes. It's goofy. It's it's really goofy. I don't don't understand. Arizona has their shit together in that regard. (laughs) They have have the Grand Canyon and they have no daylight savings time, and that's what they have. They also have uh, cartel violence, but we can, we can, oh my uh, gosh. we can overlook. I was going to say monsoon season. You went in a completely different yeah. direction. No, they have, you know, <laughs> murder and, uh, and heat and cold. Heat. They have a lot of heat. And cold at night. It's like, it gets down to like 45 degrees at night sometimes. I spend a whole lot of time out there in the summer. Yeah. I, I mean, I spent my summers, a couple summers in New Mexico. Um, but it was similar. I liked it. I was like, yeah. it's a dry heat, you know? Yeah, no, it's Not beautiful. That. It's beautiful as long as you're not driving and you need to get gas because there's exits once every 170 miles. Like you'll, oh. you'll drive by an exit on some of the interstates and, and you'll see a sign that says next exit 77 miles or something. Uh, and then when you're driving through like the back country of Utah, it's the same thing. Or there will be signs that say this road is not patrolled. Yeah. So if you break down, you're dead, essentially, is what the sign should say. <laughs> if you break down and you cannot fix yourself, you will die of, of starvation and of heat exhaustion. Oh yeah. So, yeah, but I, that's the nature of, of, of Arizona. You get killed by the cartel, but you don't have to deal with daily savings time. So. But you have, and you have the Grand Canyon. Grand Canyon is a lovely place. Yes. I don't even know if the Grand Canyon's Arizona. That's too far north. That's... Yeah, it's, it's on the in bo- Arizona. I know it's on Most the border of Arizona. It's technically Arizona, but it, it's there's not enough violence there. I feel like for it to be considered <laughs> Arizona, it's like I feel like it has to be Utah almost because Nevada too. You get some violence in Nevada, so. But I digress. Uh, anyway, uh, back to what's important. Do you have anything? Any final remarks? Anything about citizen science that people should know? How do they get involved? Yeah. I will like to point you to a website called SciStarter. It's, uh, you can put it in the show notes. It's S-C-I Starter, um, like a car starter. Um, it is a website that catalogs a whole huge swath of citizen science projects. You can search by topic. You can search by uh, age level. So if you want to do something with small kids or if you want to do something that's higher level, uh, you can search by indoor versus outdoor projects. Um, it will help you find a cool science, citizen science project to get involved in. So SciStarter.com um, is a place I point people to. Yes. Uh, yeah, I think I was at that earlier today. They have like 82 projects that are various. Oh, one aspect of citizen science um, that we didn't talk about is this idea of um, sharing your computer. So oh, sh- yeah. So Crowd want- share. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I had completely, I honestly had forgotten this was a thing. When I was doing the CosmoQuest stuff, because that's the, you know, you're clicking, you're interacting with a website. Um, 
But when I was interviewing our citizen science participants and I said, when did you first hear about citizen science? A large number of them said SETI at home was my first one. So SETI at home started when I was at Lycoming. Yes. Uh, my my pathetic little laptop uh, ran SETI at home back in whatever it was, 2002, 2003. Um, can, you in, describe, in the can you describe to the, to the yeah. listener what SETI is and what SETI at home is? Yeah. Search SETI uh, is the uh, acronym for the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. SETI at home takes a whole bunch of data that's been collected by different radio telescopes. Um, I think Arecibo is the prime one in Puerto Rico, but I think they might have some from parks in Australia as well. And it sifts through this data looking for patterns that would indicate something not natural, something weird going on, uh, something that could potentially be a signal from an alien life. Now, obviously, this is like a needle in a haystack the size of our galaxy. So this is hard. So you need a lot of computing effort to sift through all of that data. And so they started in the early, it was the early 2000s, um, parceling out that data to people's computers and running it in the background or as a screensaver um, looking for these. And it's still going on today. It's actually a bigger collaboration now. It's called Boink. I don't remember what it stands for, but it's Berkeley something, something, something computing, um, where they have lots of these projects, not just SETI at home, but uh, other things that involve lots of computing power. And you can donate your computer time to just like crunch this stuff in the background while you're not uh, working at your computer. And I hadn't, I didn't connect that with citizen science until our citizen scientists said that was my first, you know, that was my first exposure to it. So even though they weren't, personally individually doing the science they were still proud of the fact that hey, i'm donating my spare cpu cycles to this project so yeah. those are still available too yes do you know why seti in particular was one of the pioneers of this idea um i want to say it's because of the berkeley folk that were doing some distributed stuff but i don't know the whole story okay i i wasn't sure either but i i, I had an idea and the idea was that uh seti a number of years ago really started to get um decommissioned or or not funded very much through the scientific community because there were a lot of people who thought that seti used rather roundabout ways to search for extraterrestrial life so one of the things they did was they'd use radio telescopes to search for signals that an extraterrestrial civilization would be putting out there in the universe for us to see. For example, right when we used to use radio uh, for frequencies to watch television, all of the "I Love Lucy" you were watching was also being broadcasted out into the to the mm -hmm. to the universe at large. And so, if there's some extraterrestrial civilization a couple light years away, they will be receiving those. I don't know how long ago TV got kicked off. The 40? What year are we in? Wow, so longer than 40 years ago. 60 years ago, maybe? 70? Yeah. 80? 100? I don't know. However long ago we were using radio frequencies to uh, to, to send TV signals, uh, all of that was also being broadcasted to the universe at large. And so, you know, an extraterrestrial civilization might be looking at us with their radio telescope and, and watching or listening to uh, I Love Lucy or, or a very other numbers of things. And a lot of people thought that this idea of using radio telescopes to search aimlessly around the sky for some signal was a waste of resources. Uh, you were in the SETI community a little bit, right? What do you think about uh, that? I was not, um, actually. I've never done study research, but I was in radio astronomy. Um, and the 
history. So I teach a little bit about the history of SETI in my Life Beyond Earth class. Um, and you're right, SETI is, because it's an out there topic, it's kind of hard to get interest in it. Um, for, the, for many decades, SETI programs, uh, there were no dedicated SETI programs. They were piggybacked off of other radio astronomy observations that were happening. So it's, we're looking at this star cluster for star formation, but we'll also take a copy of the data and search for alien signals in it. Yes. Uh, it wasn't until um, there were smaller efforts in the 80s and 90s, and I think it was 1994, one particular congressman, and I don't remember the congressman's name, um, got a stick up his butt because Congress people have to prove to their constituents that they're saving money and their tax dollars. And so instead of going after really big expenditures uh, that are, you know, well liked or difficult to 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 climb in, you know, really get into, um, he decided to pick on a tiny little project that took up a tiny, tiny, tiny little portion of the budget. And that was SETI and mock it because aliens are silly. Yes. Um, that killed all national funding for SETI uh, mm-hmm. from NASA, from NSF um, in 94, 95. So you're right. That that was killed off, but it was it could be traced to one congressman yes. uh, well, who got a stick yeah. up his butt about it. My round- um, so that's why the, the SETI efforts now are primarily done through the SETI Institute and private funded, mm-hmm. privately funded organizations. Yeah. So my roundabout point was that uh, maybe the reason that they were one of the pioneers of this large-scale computing using other people's resources is because they might have had time getting funding on their own right. So getting some government funding or getting supercomputer time through NSF that would allow them to do these large-scale computations uh, because of the fact that they were decommissioned, because of the fact sure. that they couldn't get funding. And so they, they, they were involved in the pioneering of uh, something that's very widespread today. I have many friends who allow their computer time to be donated to many different efforts. Mm-hmm. Uh, I personally do not because some of these people, they'll be like, their CPU will be running at like 95% all night long. And I'm, yeah. I'm like, I don't know how good that is for your computer. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you're to break sometimes. Yes. If you're passionate yeah. about it, great. But if you're... You could uh, probably set the level though. You could yeah, probably yeah. say only use 50% Correct. or something I'm, like I'm, that. Yes, I'm very ignorant to the topic. And, I, and it's very possible also, I should give this disclaimer with everything I say, that it's very possible that I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. Because that, that is as likely a possibility as anything. It's possible that I what think, I say yeah. is true, but it's also possible that I don't have a damn clue what I'm saying. Be skeptical is what you're saying. Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, listen to me when it comes to, to most things, but be skeptical when it comes to every single thing I say. Yes. <laughs> no problems there. No yeah, problems there. That's my motto. Uh, we are teaching media literacy right here. Back to what you were talking about with people only looking at the headline and not looking at the story. That's all part of media literacy is learning what to take from different sources and how to check up on it yourself. That's something that uh, we don't teach or maybe we didn't teach in school when I was in school because there was no, not that there was no internet, but there was basically no internet when I was in high school. Right. Um, it was all like message boards mm-hmm. about sci-fi shows basically. Yes. Um, so yeah, media literacy, particularly in the digital age is, is super, super important for people to get yes. into. I think that science, the science community takes media literacy, maybe a little bit too far in some cases. I think that the way that we go about, uh, publishing work or even talking about work is maybe a little bit too far. I think that when I have a conversation with someone, 
they shouldn't – and I'm not talking about this conversation now. This is good for the, the, the listener. But when I'm just having a conversation over lunch with someone, I don't like the fact that they cite papers out loud while I'm eating lunch. Um, I think that that is – it's – I think that there's a certain amount of you as a scientist that should just be able to have a discussion about the topic and not have to worry that what you're saying is complete bullshit or what you're hearing is complete bullshit. There's a little bit of trust that goes into it too, right? It's not right. all, yeah, it's not all, you shouldn't discard or question everything that everyone says. You should, you should have a good bullshit filter in your brain, right? That's, I think, what science teaches you. Uh, above all else is you are able to sniff out bullshit really well uh, because when someone is talking about something that they don't know what they're talking about, specifically when it comes to your field of interest, something that you are an expert in, you can tell, you can smell it, you can sense it, and you become really good at sniffing it out of other people. Sure. And that is a really good skill to have in every, no matter what you do in your life. If you can sniff out bullshit, that is a, that's an excellent thing to have. And I think that people in science, I don't know, maybe they don't rely on that, that asset enough, but I think that they should rely on it more because you shouldn't, you shouldn't always question everything that everyone says. Uh, after all that, that would leave the PhD after your name with no meaning, right? If even though the fact that you have a PhD means that I should question everything you say, then the actual PhD is meaningless, right? And right. So you have to, to see where things come from uh, and sometimes trust people's lived experience. Yes. Uh, some people who don't have letters after their name have an experience with something that I might not have or you might not have. Mm -hmm. um, so, so listening to those lived experiences is, is important as well. I, I definitely took me time to get to the point where I realized I didn't have to cite a paper for every sentence I said. Um, because I think, yeah, that, that kind of gets drilled into you when you're writing an academic paper. You have to. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, yeah, having that discussion without having to cite every fact and, you know, trusting the expertise – based on where that person is, is, is an important mm -hmm. part of that process. Yes. And I hope I never get to the phase where I feel like I have to cite everything I say, because I love nothing more in the world excites me than talking about bullshit that I don't know anything about and pretending <laughs> and pretending that I know what I'm talking about. Oh, right? goodness. I love it. Um, it be, and I don't even do it on purpose. I'm not like setting out to lie. I'm not pretending I know all about uh, CRISPR or, or, or cancer research or genetics or, you know, chemistry. I'm not pretending I know. I just, when it comes up in conversation, I, t I share my experience, what I know. And you shouldn't expect me to be citing, citing sources in that avenue, right? But you also shouldn't go away with the suspicion that I'm completely sharing nonsense, right? So there's like a... <laughs> right. It's, it's, it's a, it's a give and take in the sense that actually I'll say that me and everyone personally should have accountability not to spew bullshit. That's where the accountability should lie. The accountability shouldn't be to, to check everything that everyone else says. It should be to not spew bullshit to begin with. Yes, but everyone else is kind of, not everyone. I'm feeling pessimistic today. A lot of people are jerks <laughs> or there's also the fact that, um, a, a lot of people believe things that may or may not be bullshit, um, but think they're doing the right thing when they're not, because there's so much information out there. Yes. None of us can be an expert on everything. Very few of us can be an expert on a lot of things. We can all be an expert on one tiny little thing. Yes. Um, so, yeah. So, yeah. So you want to be able to 
have those conversations, but filter that person's expertise level and filter the information you're getting based on their expertise and, and their experience. Right. Um, and, and be okay with changing your mind when someone tells you something that doesn't jive with what you know, because they know something different. Yes, yes, yes. These are good lessons. All right. <laughs> Takes a lot of time. I guess it's a wrap. In closing, people, New York sucks. Uh, let's see. New York sucks. Apple sucks. Steve Jobs. I still love New York. No. Ro- nope. Can't. I um, can't live there, but my family does, so I can visit, and I love Manhattan, and I love visiting, and then I like coming back home to where the traffic is not at the level that makes me cry. That's fair. Um so, yes. So, it isn't a nice place to visit. I yes. can't live there anymore. Macs suck. Your dongles suck. Your keyboard sucks. But uh, science is great. This is the most pessimistic podcast ever to be recorded because everything just <laughs> sucks. Population sucks. People suck. Citizens, who needs them? Science, screw it. It doesn't – none of it matters. Wow, nothing, this got nihilist yeah, real fast. Nothing matters. Yeah. <laughs> this whole shit. With that being nothing said, matters. Nicole – yeah, you're, even your dog left. He's like, they're talking about New York again. I got to get out of She's here. Like, done. I don't yeah. understand. <laughs> okay. With that being said, Nicole, it's great having you on. I appreciate it. It was so nice to meet you yes. and have this conversation. Yes. Uh, we look forward to having you on in the future and discussing where your research goes, why citizens do what they do, why science does what it does. Uh, and hopefully we can change our opinions on MacBooks and New York. By the, or I can change my opinion. You seem to be okay with everything. Okay, I'm okay with it. I'm not a Mac worshiper. Um, most of my devices are Apple, but I do have an Android phone. And I'm really mad at Steve Jobs for killing Adobe Flash uh, because all my favorite physics simulations use Adobe. And my students can't make it work on their computer anymore. So, yeah. Well, Steve Jobs, that's uh, on the that's growing it. list of shit that you ruined in the world. That's- Flash and I forget what other thing. Uh, Java. That's the other one. Flash and Java simulations that I love to teach with. Yeah. Well, Google don't Chrome worry. doesn't even allow you to use Java on Google Chrome anymore, right? It's not compatible with Java, I don't think. Nope. I don't think so. It is. Yeah. It's yeah. the world is going to hell. I don't even understand. We have daylight savings time. Java doesn't work. It's whatever. Whatever. We're done. <laughs> We're done. It's a wrap. We're done.